Wow. <laughs> That's kind of rude, I think. <laughs> tough section of text there a little bit. We've had some tough sections of text in the last few weeks. You know, we spent the last few weeks of, of summer, the last couple of months, you know, we've done vacations and we've gone to the park and we've gone to the mountains and we've visited friends and family and probably maybe I know some people who are doing some remodeling projects around the house and spending time in our gardens and tending to our lawns and we're enjoying the rain that we've had for a while and the cooler temperatures are really kind of nice. And so far there hasn't been any hail at the state fair, but we're only four days into it, so you never know. <laughs> We come back from all of this nice, relaxing, summertime stuff, and boom, this text. To follow me, you have to hate your family. You have to carry your cross. You have to count the cost. You have to give up all of your possessions. How's that for a nice welcome back from a summer vacation, huh? How's that? being heard by the people who are coming back to church for the very first time or who haven't been to church in a long time. They're like, oh my God, I picked this Sunday to show up? Holy mackerel. Sometimes a text is just a text and not a sign, though. But anyway. So a couple of years ago, I was uh, in a class in Tulsa, and uh, this scripture came up. And I remember telling my professor that I really, 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 really hoped that the word that is translated as hate was a mistranslation. It might have been a poor translation by the translator. And there are a number of words in Greek. You know, that's the language of the Second Testament, what we call the New Testament, that could be translated with variations depending on their context or what the author is trying to get across or who's doing the translating or that sort of thing. And I'd really hoped that this word hate was one of those, that it was a victim of poor translation, because I want a nice, kind, loving, peaceful, accepting, friendly flower Jesus. I want an easy Jesus. Nope, said my professor. That translation's pretty right on. That's exactly what that word means. Fortunately for me, or not, depending, professors are not apt to give the entire answer all at one time. And if you don't ask a follow-up question, well, that's just your own darn fault. And I didn't ask the follow-up question, which was, well, does that word mean what I think it means? Because here my professor might probably say, maybe not, maybe not. Most scholars and theologians agree that in this section, Jesus is being just a little bit hyperbolic. He's being just a little bit over the top so that he can get his point across. Matthew does the same thing when he has Jesus tell us that we have to cut off our hands or our feet if they cause us trouble. I don't know anybody that's taken that scripture literally. Interesting. <laughs> so Jesus isn't talking about having a feeling of hating somebody, of being disgusted or repulsed or being angry with someone. This isn't an emotional hatred. Now there are some in our Christian family who might take this bit of scripture as a justification for having a martyr complex. Oh, I speak against the world and they hate me doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't think that's what that text means either. Scholar Janine Brown writes that the word that Luke uses for hate might come from an idiom in ancient Hebrew. 
In Genesis, we hear that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and that Leah was hated by Jacob. A similar use of the word occurs in Deuteronomy where it's clear that this is an issue of preference and alliance. So in this way, we can see that the word has more to do with loyalty than it actually has to do with some sort of an emotional regard of one another. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and Jacob was not loyal to Leah. Loyalty is one of the founding attributes of life in first century Palestine. Needed to be loyal. So perhaps this is what Jesus is saying in Luke. When the decision has to be made about family alliances, when the demands of discipleship are made upon you, what will your decision be? Where will your allegiance lie? Sometimes to follow me, you'll need to make some pretty hard choices. Really assess things for the way that they are and not for the way that you would like them to be. You need to be like the builder that estimates the cost of the building before he starts, or the general that needs to look at whether or not he can go to war, because if he can't win a war, he'd better try to win a peace. Now, I would really like to tell you that following me is going to be a simple matter of telling people how much God loves them, and then going out to heal people and forgive their transgressions and let them know that the kingdom of God is here now and not in some far-off time. I'd like to tell you that, but frankly, it won't be like that. You might make some people mad. You might lose some friends. People in your family might get upset with your decision to follow me. You might have to tell people things that they don't necessarily want to hear. And you might upset the apple cart. Theologian Janine Brown says that Jesus is giving us an alternative to the market-driven form of Christianity. The interpretation of Christianity that prefers the idea of following Jesus is an investment. If you put ten prayers in, you'll get ten blessings out, right? The idea that says that the bigger the cross around our necks and on our shirts and on our wallets and on our purses, the more obvious it is that we are, quote, good Christians. I don't think that prosperity gospel and Christian chic is what Jesus meant by counting the cost or taking up our cross. Here's what we do when we do count the cost following the way. We have to be willing to stand up to the common culture if the common culture means that people are excluded. We have to be willing to make ourselves look foolish, to look bad, to be made fun of, if it happens to be because we insist that those in the world that tell us are the least are actually as important to God as those that the world would tell us God loves the most. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor during the Nazi regime. I stole my sermon title from his book. He was outspoken in his opposition to Hitler, and he was a part of a plot to kill him. Before he got the chance, he was arrested. Now here's what Dietrich did. Dietrich realized that killing people was wrong, and he was willing to risk God's vengeance in order to protect people from the tyrant that was Hitler. He was arrested. He spent four years in prison. The plot was carried out. A bomb was sent to Hitler's headquarters to explode. But Hitler didn't die. 
Bonhoeffer and 5,000 other people were executed, however, and Hitler committed suicide 23 days later. Bonhoeffer knew the cost of discipleship. Martin Doblemeyer, who made a film in 2006, a PBS documentary, says that Bonhoeffer saw that the gospel was a risk. And he said there is no way to get peace without risking your safety. Peace is the great adventure. The man constantly was looking for the will of God and accepting the fact that the will of God might not lead you to self-preservation. It might call you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. And the call to follow Jesus is often down a downward path. In one of his most famous books in English, The Cost of Discipleship, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so, in it he discusses the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Quoting Bonhoeffer, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus. Costly grace confronts us, he continues, in our call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It's costly because it compels a person to submit to the yoke of Jesus and follow him. It's grace because Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this isn't to say that we are offered cheap grace or costly grace. We are offered grace. What makes it cheap is what we do with it. Or rather, what we don't do with it. Cheap grace is a grace that doesn't demand anything of us. Cheap grace tells us that because we call ourselves Christians and we hold certain beliefs, that we are in like Flint. Cheap grace is a simple, thank you God for all of my blessings, and then not giving another thought to the rest of the world. Michael Harden writes that cheap grace doesn't demand anything. Costly grace is the grace that demands that we return what we've been given in the form of service to our neighbors. It's the willingness to look deep within ourselves and find out what in our lives might not be working. Standing up for fairness in the face of oppression. Even if that means challenging those who say that they have the absolute claim on knowledge of what's right and wrong. It's admitting at times that we are wrong. Acknowledging our contribution to the way the world is so screwed up and then being willing to take steps to correct it. Costly grace might demand everything we have. Luckily for us, though, we don't have to pay the price up front. All we are being asked to do is to consider what being a follower of Jesus might entail. Think about it a little bit. Ask ourselves, am I actually willing to love my neighbor as myself? Am I willing to love my enemy? If the moment in my life came, would I be willing to give up all of my possessions? If confronted with an injustice that I could not tolerate, am I willing to lose my friends and my family to speak up? Am I willing to proclaim Jesus' message of radical love and radical inclusiveness and radical acceptance when it would be just as easy to keep my mouth shut? We don't have to pay the cost up front, and we certainly do not have to be perfect. We can screw it up 
a little bit. In the prayer that we pray, we ask Jesus, we ask God for forgiveness, and we're asked to forgive. Built into that request is the assumption that at some point in life, we will fall short. We will underestimate the cost. And that's okay. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To paraphrase an article by Michael Harden, when we do the hard work of forgiving others, rather than expecting Jesus to forgive them, we opt for costly grace. When we love without expectation of love in return, we choose costly grace. When we give ourselves and our time and our money and our talents without keeping score or without expecting something in return, we choose costly grace. And when we choose a costly grace, a grace that challenges our decisions and our beliefs, we choose a costly Jesus. Amen.